Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for November 29th, 2022. I uh, just want to warn you, uh, as it usually is after there's been a little bit of a break, this is probably going to be a, a long one, so just please bear with me. Uh, let's start uh, with a couple of anniversaries. On November 28th, 1814, the Times of London was published via a steam-powered printing press. Uh, this made it the first major newspaper to be produced in that way. The use of the faster steam press took newspapers from a niche business to really a mass market business, uh, which also boosted, a uh, little ancillary benefit, boosted efforts to increase literacy. Uh, on November 28th, 1943, Winston Churchill, Franklin Roosevelt, and Joseph Stalin began the Tehran Conference, the first of their three major World War II meetings uh, between the leaders of those three countries. The main outcome of Tehran was that Roosevelt and Stalin managed to get Churchill to commit to an invasion of France, in part to force Germany to pull forces away from the Eastern Front uh, with the Soviets. They also discussed the eventual partition of Germany and the creation of the United Nations, and uh, I think it's safe to say we all lived happily ever after. Uh, on November 29th, 903, this is the anniversary of uh, the Battle of Hama, uh, which is a, I don't want to go into too much detail, you can read about it uh, on the, the site there, it was a victory uh, for the Abbasid Caliphate over a relatively obscure Shia set called the Karmatians or Karmatians. Uh, they were Ismaili Shia, if you know uh, your, your, the differences between your Shia sects. Uh, they had, uh, up to this point, controlled a fairly vast amount of territory in sort of eastern Arabia. Uh, and all the way up into Syria, this battle drove them back. Obviously, the Battle of Hama, located in Syria, drove them back out of Syria. The more important outcome, actually, was not what happened with the Karmatians, but it was uh, that the uh, the victory left the Abbasids strengthened enough to then go on uh, to deal with the Tulunid dynasty, which was a dynasty of ostensibly governors that had gotten a little big for their britches in Egypt uh, and established their own kind of, um, let's say, uh, independent uh, administration over Egypt, and the Abbasids were able uh, to kind of bring uh, the Talunids back to heel after this battle. It didn't last very long because uh, what happened next was another Shia, another Ismaili, in fact, Shia dynasty, uh, the Fatimids, emerged in North Africa and swept across uh, North Africa, eventually conquering Egypt and Syria, uh, taking it again out of the hands of the Abbasids. So uh, just a little Middle Eastern history for you there. Uh, on November 29th, 1890, the Meiji Constitution in Japan went into effect, codifying a semi-constitutional monarchy that was modeled along the lines of Prussia and the United Kingdom. In principle, the Constitution vested substantial powers in the person of the emperor, though in practice, most executive function was meant to rest with the prime minister and the civilian government, while an elected diet was to hold legislative power. Uh, there were ambiguities uh, from the start almost between uh, over the relationship between these institutions that may have facilitated, oopsie, the, uh, Japan's slide into totalitarianism prior to World War II. Uh, after Japan lost that war, the U.S. occupation drafted a new constitution, uh, one that explicitly limited the emperor to a um, almost entirely symbolic role. 
Uh, on to the news in the Middle East. Uh, we'll start in Syria, where the Turkish military has spent the past week or so laying the groundwork for its forthcoming, maybe, uh, invasion of northern Syria. Turkish air power and artillery units have been bombarding targets linked with the Syrian Kurdish YPG militia or the Syrian Democratic Forces, if you prefer. Although for this con- in this context, they're basically uh, indistinguishable from one another. Uh, that's been going on for the past several days. Uh, according to a senior official quoted by Reuters, Turkish ground forces would need only, quote, just a few days to become almost fully ready, end quote, to roll across the border. Again, uh, I think it's important to note here this will be at least the third Turkish invasion of Syria, depending on your definition of invasion, uh, and may well not be the last. Uh, we're apparently supposed to believe that this incursion has been motivated entirely by the terrorist bombing in Istanbul earlier this month, which Ankara blames on the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, uh, and therefore also on the YPG, since Turkish officials do not differentiate between those two groups. Uh, this would be very simple and believable, except for the fact that the Turkish government has had a new Syrian operation on the card since at least May. Uh, the more salient question then may be why the Turks are still holding off. Uh, the stated U.S opposition to another incursion may be part of the reason, though that opposition has been pretty milquetoast, and Syrian Kurds in, in the YPG or SDF uh, have noted that, actually, of late. They've been complaining a bit. Uh, and at the end of the day, the U.S. didn't oppose Turkey's two previous invasions in any practical way, uh, and that's, unlike, that's likely going to be the case this time around as well. It is more probable, I think, that the, that Russian opposition uh, is giving Turkey some pause. Uh, Moscow is reportedly negotiating a deal with the SDF that would see its forces along the Syrian-Turkish border give way to the Syrian military, which could address Turkey's concerns about border security. It sounds like the Turks are waiting to see how that process plays out before they make any, let's say, irreversible decisions about an invasion. In Israel-Palestine, Israeli occupation forces killed at least five Palestinians amid multiple incidents in the West Bank on Tuesday, including one who injured an Israeli soldier in an apparent car ramming. The Israelis shot and killed four people characterized as rioters that they characterize as rioters, two overnight near the city of Ramallah, one on Tuesday afternoon also near Ramallah, and one near Nablus. Uh, the apparent ramming attack took place near the Migron settlement, or Migron settlement, I'm not sure how that's pronounced, uh, also near Ramallah and a bit north of Jerusalem. This is, uh, of course, on pace to be the deadliest year on record for Palestinians in the West Bank, and with Prime Minister-designate Benjamin Netanyahu offering ultra-right-wing political leader Itamar Ben-Gvir expanded powers in a newly created position sort of bespoke for him uh, of national security minister, there is no reason to expect uh, the level of violence to change in any way. Uh, Netanyahu, speaking of which, Netanyahu's forthcoming cabinet is still taking shape, but you'll undoubtedly be pleased to learn that he's offered another far-right Israeli party leader, Avi Maoz uh, of the Nome Party, uh, a position as a deputy cabinet minister with responsibilities related to the Jewish identity of the Israeli populace. I put that in quotes that's from the uh, the news here, the article. Uh, Maoz comes from the settler community, so he has all the expected views of the Palestinian issue that 
you might uh, attribute to him from that, coming from that background. But he also brings with him strident opposition to LGBTQ rights uh, and a sense that non-Orthodox Jews may not actually count as Jewish, uh, which uh, says a lot about the predominantly uh, reform and or conservative uh, American Jewish population. Uh, so he sounds nice. He sounds like a nice guy, in other words. Uh, should be very interesting. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, there's a, a lengthy piece in The Guardian today on the palace intrigue that surrounded the 2017 ouster of Saudi Prince Mohammed bin Nayef as heir apparent in favor of current Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, I can't vouch for its accuracy, and it's not hugely relevant to current events, so I didn't want to go into much detail. Uh, it does touch on the legal protections that the U.S. government is offering to MBS in, in his various lawsuits here in the U.S., uh, but it is a fairly gripping read if you're interested in that sort of thing, so I wanted to kind of highlight it if, if people want to check it out. Uh, in Iran, a general in the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, Amir Ali Hajizadeh, uh, told Iranian media on Tuesday that the ongoing protests sparked by the death of Masa Amini back in September have seen, I'm quoting here, perhaps more than 300 martyrs and people killed, end quote. Uh, presumably martyrs here refers to members of Iranian security forces, while people refers to everybody else, the protesters. Uh, this is notable uh, because it is by far the highest death toll an Iranian official has acknowledged uh, in these protests, though it's still well shy of the 448 protesters that the Oslo-based uh, non-governmental organization Iran Human Rights says have been killed by Iranian security forces since the protests began. Uh, on to Asia uh, in Kazakhstan, where President Kasim Jomar Tokayev won re-election with 82.45% of the vote in Kazakhstan's November 21st snap election. I know I was really surprised, too. Uh, Tokayev will now serve a single seven-year term in accordance with the constitutional changes he shepherded into being earlier this year. Uh, he's 69 years old, so he may well be ready for retirement by the end of that term, though if he's not, then I'm sure the single-term issue can be revealed visited uh, one way or another, either with uh, the addition of a second term, or maybe he'll get another job that still allows him to kind of control things uh, in a bespoke fashion. Who knows? Uh, I'm sure his political career won't have to end if he doesn't want it to. Uh, in Pakistan, the Pakistani Taliban, or TTP, announced on Monday that it is quitting the ceasefire agreement it struck with the Pakistani government back in June. If this sounds unsurprising to you, that's probably because both parties have been openly violating that agreement for several, at least several weeks. Uh, the TTP cited an ongoing military campaign against it as its justification for formally abandoning the pact. In India, according to Reuters, the Russian government has sent an extensive laundry list of things it would like to import from India uh, to New Delhi, given uh, that its ability uh, to source imports uh, has been, let's say, drastically limited uh, by Western sanctions. Uh, the Indian government is considering the Russian request, so there's not much to say about it at this point. But this is a situa situation that probably bears some watching. On the one hand, India would presumably appreciate the chance to expand its imports to Russia, with which it currently has a very large trade deficit, mostly fueled by oil. I'm really sorry for the pun there. Uh, on the other hand, Indian officials are undoubtedly concerned about running afoul of those aforementioned sanctions. So it'll be interesting to see where they sort of come down here. 
uh, in Malaysia, and an outcome that I think would have to be considered at least a little bit surprising. Anwar Ibrahim uh, became the new prime minister of Malaysia on Thursday after the country's November 19th snap election resulted in a hung parliament. Uh, King Abdullah of Malaysia tapped Anwar as PM after holding parliamentary consultations, but there remains some question about whether or not he actually controls a legislative majority. Uh, Anwar's Pakatan Harapan coalition uh, emerged from the election as the largest bloc in the new parliament, but at 82 seats, it's still 30 shy of the 112 needed for a majority. Uh, He was unable to demonstrate control of a majority prior to his appointment uh, and could be challenged to do so. So in a legislative session, uh, former Prime Minister Ismail Sabri Yaakob, who'd been hoping to emerge from this vote with a stronger majority, a majority that was not dependent uh, on coalition partners, uh, instead saw his Barisan Nacional bloc, uh, saw its support basically collapse at one only 30 seats, which is kind of shocking uh, for an incumbent uh, ruling party. Uh, it's beyond our scope, uh, particularly in what is already um, looking like a long roundup, given where we are and how much t- time it's taken me to read uh, this. Uh, but Anwar's appointment as PM does cap a roller coaster ride of a career uh, in which he's come very close to the premiership on two previous occasions. Sandwiched in between those occasions was a lengthy prison stint on sodomy charges that Anwar insists were politically motivated. Uh, Malaysia does, of course, uh, criminalize LGBT. LGBTQ uh, behavior, so uh, just just to make that clear. Uh, Anwar has positioned himself as a defender of minority rights, uh, though heading into the election, he did promise to preserve or protect the status uh, of Malaysia's majority Malay people. Uh, In China, uh, the U.S. Defense Department issued its 2022 China Military Power Report on Tuesday, with the headline being the growth of China's nuclear arsenal. Two years ago, the Pentagon estimated that China would be up to around 400 nuclear warheads by the end of this decade. But according to this latest report, China has already hit that mark uh, and could now – it's now estimated it could have – uh, upwards uh, of 1,500 warheads by 2035. Uh, speculating about the size and growth of the Chinese nuclear arsenal has been a hobby among the defense set for several years now, and it's become a pretty lucrative hobby, uh, given that the U.S. government is is set partly because of concerns uh, about China's nuclear arsenal to spend, uh, they say, around $1.5 trillion. I, I think that's going to be uh, I think it's going to be much more than that, probably, uh, over the next several years, modernizing the U.S. nuclear arsenal. Uh, elsewhere, and this has been sort of the biggest story, I guess, uh, while I was gone, uh, the past few days have seen what appear to be significant protests across China sparked by frustration over the Chinese government's zero COVID policy and its attendant lockdowns. Uh, the immediate trigger for these demonstrations was an apartment building fire in the city of Urumqi, which is in uh, the Xinjiang, Xinjiang region, uh, on Thursday, uh, that in which 10 people died. Uh, their deaths drew people into the streets out of a sense that lockdown restrictions uh, may have prevented those people from evacuating uh, the building and or may have hampered efforts to respond to the fire. Uh, The protests then spread from Arumki to cities uh, throughout mainland China and into Hong Kong uh, and through Chinese social media online uh, over the weekend. Uh, This has been been at least arguably the most intense outburst of public discontent since Xi Jinping became Chinese president in 2012. 
Uh, I'm reluctant to make any sweeping pronouncements about what it all means. Uh, For one thing, there are indications that the protests are kind of winding down a bit. There were, at least on Monday, indications of that. They they could spark up again. Don't get me wrong here. Uh, But Chinese authorities are, on the one hand, kind of clamping down on the protests themselves. On the other hand, they seem to be relaxing some of the most restrictive uh, of the lockdown measures. So that may have an effect of, of ameliorating the protests to some degree. For another thing, as is frequently the case in these kinds of situations, it's hard to know how deep the disenchantment runs. The protests seem to have been large, but you know how large and, and what segment of the population is really frustrated uh, is unclear. There is There definitely is disenchantment uh, about zero COVID, and that's unsurprising given that uh, you know, you just can't leave people in maximal lockdown conditions indefinitely. And the Chinese government, uh, while it has saved uh, th- this policy, I think unquestionably has saved lives. Uh, there has been a lag in terms of uh, rolling out vaccines and other things that might allow some reopening, if not, you know, total reopening. Uh, so, you know, I think it's just put people under a lot of pressure to leave them in these kind of very restrictive lockdown conditions that get, you know, vastly more restrictive if there's an isolated case or two in a particular uh, city. So it's it's not surprising to me that there is uh, disenchantment with this policy, but how widespread it is and uh, how deep it runs, whether people are uh, you know uh, f- just upset with the policy in total or on, uh, upset with uh, how it's been implemented in some way, there's a lot of kind of nuance here that uh, that we simply don't know a lot about, and it's it's difficult to uh, say much more under those conditions without just idly speculating. Uh, which, uh, you know, I, I, I try not to do. I'm sure I do my share of it, but uh, I try to avoid uh, when as much as possible. Uh, speaking of idle speculation, let's move on to North Korea. Uh, this is really wonderful stuff. Uh, Kim Jong-un uh, his, has brought his daughter, whose name is Ju Ai, I hope I'm not mispronouncing that too badly, uh, with him to a couple of public events this month. Um, I am really reluctant to even bring this up, but we're in a media environment where any like minor change in Kim's appearance, if he cuts his hair, parts his hair in a different way, or like changes his shirt or something, uh, sparks dozens of breathless takes about whether he's you know healthy or what it all means, what his succession plans could be. Uh, and so, uh, unsurprisingly, these two appearances, which are, are fairly new, uh, of his daughter in public have sparked a bunch of breathless takes in what Western media about whether or not Kim is preparing Ju uh, to be his eventual successor. Uh, For the record, Kim is believed to be uh, 40 years old. Officially, I think he's 40 years old. It's possible that he's uh, a year younger than that. There's some speculation that they fudged his uh, birth records for ideological reasons. Uh, And, you know, while I, I grant you he spent several years basically constantly dying of any of, you know, dozens of different ailments, uh, according to Western media. He appears to be fine despite that, which, you know, good for him, I guess. Uh, His daughter, meanwhile, is believed to be around 10. Uh, So I think it's fairly unlikely that she's going to be taking power anytime soon, if ever. Uh, And yet we have to do the, the, you know, what's going on, uh, the Korea watching uh, stuff that that happens anytime uh, something like this takes place, which is just, uh, you know, 
pretty absurd, but but that's the way uh, that's the way the cookie crumbles, I guess. Uh, moving on to Africa, we'll start in the Central African Republic, uh, where some unknown enterprising party apparently decided to conduct an airstrike near a military base used by uh, the Russian Wagner Group uh, and its mercenaries in the Central African town uh, of Basangoa on Monday. Uh, the aircraft that conducted the attack flew off to the north, according to Central African officials, for whatever that's worth. Uh, I haven't seen any indication as to casualties, and there's certainly been no indication as to who uh, the responsible party was here. Uh, in Equatorial Guinea, uh, President Teodoro Obiang won re-election to a sixth term on November 20th, uh, according to a tweet over the weekend from his vice president slash son, uh, Teodoro, Teodoro and Gwema Obiang Mange. Uh, the vote was a real nail-biter, uh, with Obiang squeaking through with around 95% of the vote, uh, you know, just, just barely uh, eked his way past the opposition. Uh, he remains the longest-serving non-monarchical head of state in the world, and I was going to say elected head of state there, but I, I really think that stretches uh, the definition of the word elected just a bit. Uh, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, tensions uh, in the eastern DRC remain high, but the Congolese military and the M23 militia both appear to be sticking to a ceasefire agreement that was reached during a regional peace conference last week in Angola. Uh, M23 did not attend that conference, but it did agree to abide by the ceasefire, perhaps because it was backed by the threat of a regional military intervention uh, if M23 did not abide by the ceasefire. Uh, a new round of talks opened in Kenya on Monday with the goal of moving beyond the ceasefire to the disarmament and rehabilitation of M23 and other armed groups that are active in the eastern DRC. The next step presumably would be for the M23 group to pull back from the towns and cities that it's captured since resuming its insurgency in earnest back in March. Uh, but M23 leaders have been reluctant to take that step. They say they don't trust the Congolese government to honor its commitments. Uh, they're likely to want some kind of regional assurance uh, before they take a step like that. Uh, on to Europe. Uh, in Russia, uh, European Union member states may be approaching an agreement on a Russian oil price cap, which they're hoping to complete before their embargo on seaborne Russian oil imports takes effect on December 5th. Uh, there's still no apparent agreement, however, on the price level for that cap. This, uh, to me, dubious scheme is supposed to reduce Russian oil profits without impacting Russian oil exports, which means that EU members need to find a price point that's lower than what Russia is currently getting uh, on the oil market, but not so much lower uh, that Russia just decides to stop selling oil. Uh, earlier this year, the G7 proposed a cap of around $65 to $70 a barrel, uh, but Russian oil is currently trading for less than that, so this EU cap would have to be lower to have any effect on Russian oil revenue. Uh, Eastern EU members, which are uh, have been the most stridently uh, kind of hostile toward Russia, they're pushing for a cap that's just a bit higher uh, than Russian oil production costs, which would be somewhere around $30, $30 excuse me, per barrel. Uh, it seems very likely that Moscow would simply say, you know what, we're not going to export any more oil at that price, uh, which would play havoc with the global oil market. It would, it would spike prices probably, uh, you know, could lead to Russia actually getting, making more money on the oil that it sells to other, uh, other places other than, than Europe. So it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I don't see this scheme working, but, uh, you know, I guess we'll see. 
meanwhile, the Russian government has pulled out of a scheduled arms control meeting with U.S. representatives that was supposed to have taken place this week. According to Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Ryabkov, uh, the two sides couldn't agree on the scope of the session. The U.S. was focused on resuming arms inspections under New START. Uh, the Russians were looking to discuss an array of topics, including uh, U.S. military support for the Ukrainians. Uh, Ryabkov stressed that Russia has not given up on New START, but at this point, there's no indication when or even if this session is going to be rescheduled. Uh, that's only going to raise fears that these tensions over Ukraine could wind up quashing the world's only remaining strategic nuclear arms treaty, which would be uh, a real shame. Uh, in Ukraine, uh, NATO foreign ministers met in Bucharest on Tuesday and promised yet more aid, uh, both military and logistical. The latter is especially significant right now as Russian airstrikes continue to target Ukraine's civilian infrastructure in an effort to leave Ukrainians uh, without power and or heat through the winter. Replacement parts for Ukraine's power grid, for example, are apparently high on the list of necessities. On the military side, the focus still appears to be air defense systems and ammunition. However, the U.S. may also be preparing to send Boeing's ground-launch small-diameter bomb to Ukraine for use with its uh, high-mobility artillery rocket system, or HIMARS. Uh, the, uh, this this bomb, the GLSDB, there's no good way to say that acronym, so I guess we'll just say ground launch small diameter bomb, is a modification of a uh, an air-delivered munition developed by Boeing. Uh, the modification incorporates a rocket engine so that it can be fired from a ground-based uh, artillery unit. It has a range of around 150 kilometers or 94 miles, give or take, uh, which is significantly longer than the ammunition Ukraine currently has for its HIMARS units, but it's well short of the 300 or so kilometer army tactical missile system, which is what the Ukrainians have been requesting. The U.S. has been rebuffing those requests uh, due to concerns that such a long, long range uh, weapon could be used to strike targets well inside Russia uh, and that that would risk escalating the conflict. Um, this uh, ground launch small diameter bomb is being portrayed as a reasonable compromise, uh, which is fine, but the the pressure to keep sending Ukraine more advanced, more powerful, more, you know, kind of longer range armaments is only going to keep growing the longer this conflict continues. And so I, you know, I, I don't see the Biden administration holding out forever on that on that front. But uh, again, we'll see. Uh, in the Americas, uh, in Brazil, supporters of lame duck President Jair Bolsonaro are engaging in increasingly violent forms of protest, particularly in Mato Grosso State, uh, in the belief that their hero's defeat and last month's runoff was somehow fraudulent. Bolsonaro actually filed a formal challenge to the outcome of that election last week over an alleged bug in uh, covering, he said, some 60 percent of Brazil's electronic voting machines. Uh, the challenge was quickly dismissed by electoral court judge Alexandra de Moraes, uh, who, among other things, called Bolsonaro's request bizarre and illicit. Uh, I didn't mince words, I guess. Uh, it's likely Bolsonaro made that challenge not really because he had any expectation of winning, uh, but rather in an effort to kind of give a boost 
to the protests. So I think he's hoping uh, that unrest, he's still hoping that uh, the unrest will cause the military to step in and kind of void the election uh, and keep him in office. I think it's his end game here. We'll see uh, what transpires. Uh, in Peru, a group of 67 members of the Peruvian Congress uh, have filed a, has filed a motion to impeach President Pedro Castillo. Uh, this is their third attempt at removing Castillo since he assumed office in July 2021. Uh, Castillo's presidency has been marked by outward dysfunction as well as allegations of corruption, but opposition parties have as yet been unable to cobble together the 87 votes that would be needed to oust him, and it's difficult to imagine, although they're only 20 away apparently, still difficult to imagine that they'll have any better uh, luck this time around. Uh, Castillo reshuffled his cabinet yet again last week, uh, appointing former culture minister Betsy Chavez uh, as his fifth prime minister. That's five prime ministers in uh, not even a year and a half. Uh, that's that's a pretty good churn rate. Uh, anyway, opposition leaders are accusing Castillo of trying to leverage a potential no-confidence vote in the cabinet uh, to force the dissolution of Congress and a new legislative election. There is apparently some provision in Peruvian law where um, if the, the, the Congress votes no confidence in a cabinet, uh, that could uh, lead to, could trigger a process that could lead uh, to a, a snap election. Uh, in Venezuela, the Biden administration over the weekend gave Chevron, the American oil company, permission to resume limited energy operations in Venezuela. This could be the first step toward bringing uh, that heavily sanctioned country fully back into the global oil market. The move came in response to an announcement uh, that Maduro's, uh, that uh, Nicolas Maduro's government and Venezuelan op opposition leaders had agreed to resume uh, negotiations uh, on resolving their political stance. Uh, the two sides signed uh, on Saturday uh, what they called a, quote, partial agreement on social matters. Uh, this mostly seems to be a broad proposal for humanitarian aid, along with a commitment to negotiate toward uh, holding 2024's scheduled presidential election with the full participation uh, of the opposition under whatever terms uh, the, the two sides would find mutually acceptable. Uh, finally, in the United States, when we left off, uh, uh, I guess it's been almost two weeks now, uh, the U.S. Spe Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, or SIGAR, uh, had just released a postmortem on the collapse of the previous Afghan government. Uh, there's a piece uh, by Adam Weinstein at, at Responsible Statecraft uh, arguing that the report ought to be a helpful warning for U.S. policymakers about the futility of nation building. Uh, but I wanted to end with uh, a piece from Spencer Ackerman from his Forever Wars newsletter uh, in which he argues, I think uh, quite reasonably, uh, that the special inspector general went way too easy on those very same U.S. policymakers, both in this report specifically and throughout its history. I'll just read you a couple of paragraphs from Spencer's piece. Sigar uh, told stories about the trees while avoiding the forest and the people trying to survive the changing ecosystem. The way to do so often was to present the Afghans as incapable and thieving. Uh, the Coast City Power Grid example, which is something he talks about 
earlier in the piece, which I picked at random from Cigar's website archive, concluded that the U.S. engineering improvements delivered more electricity, but, quote, due to the GIROA, the U.S.-backed Afghan regime or the government of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, uh, and local operators' limited capability to sustain the infrastructure and the considerable safety hazards which negatively impact the operation of the facilities, there is risk to the U.S. government's investment of $1.6 million. Uh, this blinkered focus runs throughout what may be Cigar's final, I think, consumer report released Thursday titled Why Afghanistan's Government Collapsed. Uh, the war ultimately failed, Cigar tells us, because of endemic corruption, a phrase Cigar reserves for the Afghan government and never its American patron. In sheaves of reports for something like 15 years, Cigar presented corruption as the central problem of the war, and Cigar meant the Afghans' corruption. American corruption, the inevitable corruption of an endless war economy, got treated as unfortunate, marginal, or exceptional, rather than as context for Afghan political, economic, and security decisions. It's a really good piece. Uh, definitely uh, recommend you click through and, uh, and check it out. On that note, uh, I have kept you long enough. This has gone on uh, much longer than uh, normal. I apologize for that, but that's uh, that's what happens when I'm away for a little while. Uh, so uh, I just want to thank you all uh, for listening and or reading uh, the newsletter. Uh, I want to thank those of you who are subscribed, uh, whether free subscribers uh, or paid subscribers, paid subscribers especially. Uh, you guys make it possible for, for me to do this work. Uh, so thank you for that. I hope anybody who was celebrating Thanksgiving last week had a happy holiday. Uh, I know I left on, on somewhat dire-sounding terms for a family situation. I'm pleased to say uh, that seems to be okay now, So uh, uh, at least for – uh, for now. So uh, very happy about that. Uh, and uh, glad to be back doing doing the newsletter. And, uh, you know, we'll be back to regular programming for a while. Uh, and then, you know, Christmas will hit and we'll, we'll maybe take a little break then uh, as well. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, as always, until next time, take care and I'll talk to you soon. Bye bye.